course, I'm going to have to fix this later, but uh, now that we're actually getting started, let me go ahead and show you what's up with my <laughs> office chair. <laughs> um, I did, I forgot to do it before the, uh, before my dramatic moment with the, the title song, but um, yeah, so you're not going to be able to see it at first because I've covered it up with a pillowcase right that much is uh, gonna be a little more challenging but let me let me zoom in a little bit here this could be this could be a little hard to spot so here's my office chair kind of cool right I've got it covered up with uh, the the same green cloth as my background so very subtle but uh, let's let's go ahead and pull this off of here just just tease this right off hmm interesting now why would Sam buy a temporary office chair well this was the first one that I found what uh, why wouldn't Sam want to kind of hold on to it what is that is that is that leopard print is that leopard print why yes it is <laughs> it's it's leopard print microfiber it's de it's deluxe it's delirious it's de lovely and uh yeah who knows how long i'll be saddled with this sucker but this the one right here. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> you and me, baby. This is my steed. We're going to ride this one all the way to the end. Ride it till she falls down. Can't get up no more. <laughs> so, if you're wondering what my deal is. I thought you told me I couldn't tell them about your leopard print. You can't because I got to. I gotta, I gotta be able to break it in my own time, in my own way. I have to be able to break the news about my leopard print your office chair. chair. It's your granny chair. Granny? Yeah. Granny from what? Jersey? Sure. Why is it granny chair? <laughs> What's a granny chair? I don't know. I feel like granny's like leopard print. Well, you grew up out on the west coast and I grew up in the midwest and so I don't know what kind of grannies you're dealing with. I, I had quilt grannies. If you had leopard print grannies, we gotta talk later. My family's very young. So I bet that's oh boy. Oh, you think it's a generational thing? It sort I of do. jumped from uh, <laughs> jumped from Quilting quilts to leopard, print. to leopard print. Oh boy. Alright, there you go gang. Uh, Y'all can thank my brother for helping us to uh, sort of get this back to the house. Um, got some, got some new uh, new speakers too. It's a good, good, a solid goodwill run overall. Thank you for keeping my secret. I needed time to process it for myself. I should have put it in the Discord day one. No, don't. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, the Bean Queen might actually be available tonight for uh, for reading stuff. Okay. All right. And with Hold that... Oh, mm, what? Can we get a hype train going for the granny chair? <laughs> for, for the granny chair. That's all. In exchange for granny chair. Just saying. Harthook says, I love leopard print stuff. Well, you can have it. <laughs> you might be a granny. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to be a granny. If you like leopard print office chairs... You might be a granny. <laughs> you might be a here's your shine. There we go. Orly Rose, what a... <laughs> that is a reference. That's a reference and a half. Leisure suit, Larry. Good lord. Good grief. Okay, all right. And with that, actual reading time. <laughs> Yikes. How do you do? Let me tell you what I said. Are you ready for this week? You may not be, frankly. Uh, some stuff going on this week, as I think y'all well understand. Um, hey, gang. 
<laughs> ah, ah, I made chicken parm, uh, but I didn't have time to eat any of it. I had I had a late lunch, so it's good. But uh, I, I just had to make some quick chicken parm because my brother was in town, so our meal prep got all out of whack. So we're good now, but took a quick bite and uh, then went ahead and like inhaled some of it. Um, and not in like the fun way where you eat really quickly, but in the bad way where uh, I've just got this tickle lingering in the back of my throat. Not ideal. Sir David Good Vibes. <laughs> Sir David of the Good Vibes Kingdom has this to say. Ah, yeah. Because I think Sir David Good Vibes is the Kool-Aid man. I guess I've made that decision for Sir David. Um... I've made it for this one. Looking forward to another great read. Last week was such a crazy ch few chapters. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. We begin part two now. Part two titled The Quell. For those of you returning to this story after having read it all the way through once on your own or more, y'all know what's coming up next. But for those of you who are experiencing this for the first time, I, I envy you. And at the same time, I don't. Because it gets wild. Van Saves Lives says, Gonna have to lurk a tiny bit. I'm listening while I'm at work and all, but very stoked for this week. And Van Saves Lives, I will have you know, I found your dang podcast. Vidcast? Vodcast? Vodcast, maybe, is the one that makes the most sense. There's some, there's some sort of visual editing bits in there. I see you, Van. I see you. <laughs> Art Hook. Hello, how do you do, Heart Hook? Y'all, are you ready for another exciting week? I certainly am. I'm wearing just a t-shirt. Don't have my don't have my my hat on. Um, I'm actually wearing more shorts than usual. Instead of just <laughs> I'm wearing like human like go outside shorts instead of my gym shorts that I typically wear because it gets a little toasty in here. But uh, no, between between no Oxford and no hat, I I feel virtually naked right now. <laughs> you gotta gain a lot of weight don't worry sir david good vibes it's all water weight ah he did it <laughs> he made the dumbest joke that there ever was ah we got him we got him gang oh boy <laughs> make the lamest joke i've ever made um, I hope y'all will still join me this week. Um, actually, you know what? Heck, if I, I, I'm, I'm wearing real life human shorts. You know what? No, I got. <laughs> I want to do it later when there might, when, uh, when more people have filtered in. But uh, I have got a new office chair. It's temporary, uh, and you'll see why <laughs> later on. I'll do the big reveal uh, <laughs> when we actually get in and uh, hop into the chapter. But, folks, what are you up to this week? Some working, trying to gain some water weight to be the Kool-Aid man for your cool cosplay. Um, cool with a K. The, uh, let's see, we've got some sound bites to do today, which is always exciting. Um, I, I, as is my custom, I have pushed those toward the end of the month. I am definitely glad it was, it was smart of me. I don't know about smart, but it was a moment of knowing myself uh, wherein I asked for the deadline to be early in the month, so I know what's coming that way. That way, 
I don't procrastinate and then get surprised by additional stuff that I need to uh, read up on stream. So today we've got uh, a few sound bites. Um, I think the bulk of it is going to be Elantris, but we've got, uh, I believe we've got a um, a spot of Beetle the Bard. We've got a spot of uh, something uh, written by or collected by Marinvare. I do not know which. I don't know which of the two. I know it references a character I'm familiar with, but I've never read the book, so I couldn't tell you if it was pulled straight from the books or if this was written by Marin Fair. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Sparkle of Good says, Yay! Yes, indeed, Sparkle of Good. Never you fear. Never you fear. All right, folks. I think people are starting to filter in. As such, let's talk. A spot of review. I can already tell today's going to be a weird one. Chapter 7, 8, and 9. The final part of part 1. The final episode of part 1, The Spark. Chapter 7. Katniss is still reeling from the, uh, the understanding that not only is she going to have to... Um, really sort of commit to this thing with uh, PETA for long, long, long term. Like, lifetime long term. But she's also sort of, uh, as she progresses through this one, she is trying to formulate her plans to get out of town. There, are, There's rebellion popping up uh, in some of the districts. She's at, at least District 8. She sees that much on the TV, and she wasn't meant to see it, but she does, and she has to immediately, she goes out into the wilderness and meets up with Gale um, to discuss her plans to get out. But the part that leaves her reeling is that A... Gale uh, says, essentially, if the rebellion started, I'm not going anywhere. I wouldn't in a million years. And B, you know, she's got this whole plan. This is what she wants to do. She knows her family's in danger. The only thing she can do is leave, right? Go off into the wilderness with her family and just hope to survive? Well, she gets back. She follows Gale back to town um, at, at a bit of a distance and finds that Gale has been punished by the new head peacekeeper of district 12 peacekeeper uh, head peacekeeper thread romulus thread not a good guy he has gale uh chained up to a post in the middle of town and whipped um and we're talking like 40 lashes like life-threatening punishment this isn't just ouchy ouchy without Canis' uh, mother's administrations, uh, it is very possible, likely even, that Gale would have died. That's how that's how serious this was. Uh, and just for hunting outside the fence, this new head peacekeeper is cracking down, and as a winter storm rolls in, he implements more changes. The hob is straight up set on fire. They just burn the whole thing down. Uh, the people who used to sell there are either in the newly built stocks in the middle of town, uh, under the threat of the nearby newly built gallows, or they are simply in hiding, uh, not sure how to make their living now that the, their, their place of business has been burned down. Um, Katniss is watching as District 12 experiences the crackdown here. She realizes. Who is she? If that little stunt with the berries was an act of selfishness, just trying to get out of the, uh, just trying to get out of the arena, 
she considers herself to be a selfish person. If it was an act of blind love, then in her mind, she is slightly less selfish, uh, but still not, she doesn't consider that to have a lot of meaning. But if it really was an act of rebellion, and if President Snow has already informed her with his subtle ways that she hasn't done enough, which he has, well, there's a third option. What could that stunt with the berries mean? Well, it could be an act of rebellion. And that, says Katniss to herself, that is something meaningful. That makes me meaningful in some way. That's a person I can be proud to be. So she decides to stay. She's going to stay, and she's going to try and stir up a spot of rebellion. Now... She has a few discussions with uh, Gale, um, even though Gale is staying at a considerable distance after uh, he almost died um, <laughs> from this punishment. Um, she talks a bit more with Haymitch, who doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be super stoked about this plan. He sort of laughs it off, um, and finally she tries to talk with Peta about it. The two of them. They're able to, they're sort of like back to some of their old rhythms. Um, it's, it's definitely strained, but it's there. Um, and this is essentially when uh, Katniss, who, you know, just, just sort of needs a break, wants to go out hunting, uh, recognizes that with the crackdown, the rebellion that she hoped to start here in District 12, people are afraid to even leave their homes, much less, you know, start throwing bricks and... So she decides to go out into the woods. It's the place where she feels like she can relax. So off she goes. And that's when she hears snapping twigs. Crunching footsteps. Gun sounds. And then she sees a peacekeeper. But this peacekeeper, in some heavy air quotes drops their gun to the ground, and presents a piece of bread. A piece of bread with an image in it. An image of the Mockingjay. Katniss's symbol. Chapter 10 It's my Mockingjay. It makes no sense. My bird baked into bread. Unlike the stylish renderings I saw in the capital, this has a... Oops. Scusi. Hold on. I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not off to a, like a smooth start today. Um, maybe we can figure this out as we go. Probably not. It makes no sense. 
my bird baked into bread. Unlike the stylish renderings I saw in the capital, this is definitely not a fashion statement. What is it? What does it mean? I ask harshly, still prepared to kill. It means we're on your side, says a tremulous voice behind me. I didn't see her when I came up. She must have been in the house. I don't take my eyes off of my current target. Probably the newcomer is armed, but I'm willing to bet she won't risk letting me hear the click that will mean my death was imminent, knowing I would instantly kill her companion. Come around here where I can see you, I order. Uh, she can't. She's... Begins the woman with the cracker. Come around, I shout. There's a step and a dragging sound. I can hear the effort that the movement requires. Another woman, or maybe I should call her a girl since she looks about my age, limps into view. She's dressed in an ill-fitting peacekeeper's uniform, complete with a white fur cloak, but it's several sizes too large for her slight frame. She carries no visible weapon. Her hands are occupied with steadying a rough crutch made from a broken branch. The toe of her right boot can't clear the snow, hence the dragging. I examine the girl's face, which is bright red from the cold. Her teeth are crooked and there's a strawberry birthmark over one of her chocolate brown eyes. This is no peacekeeper. No citizen of the capital, either. Who are you? I ask warily, but less belligerently. My name's Twill, says the woman. She's older, maybe 35 or so. And this is Barney. We run away from District 8. District 8? Then they must know about the uprisings. Where'd you get the uniforms? I ask. We stole them from the factory. We make them there, says Barney. Only I thought this one would be for someone else. That's why... It fits so poorly. The gun came from a dead peacekeeper, says Twill, following my eyes. That cracker in your hand with the bird. What's that about? Don't you know Katniss? Bonnie appears genuinely surprised. They recognize me. Of course they recognize me. My face is uncovered and I'm standing here outside of District 12 pointing an arrow at them. Who else would I be? I know it matches the pen I wore in the arena. She doesn't know, says Bonnie softly. Maybe not about any part of it. Suddenly I feel the need to appear on top of things. I know you had an uprising in eight. Yeah, that's why we had to get out, says Twill. Are you going out now? What are you going to do? I ask. We're headed for District 13, Twill replies. 13? There is no 13. It got blown off the map. 75 years ago, says Twill. Bonnie shifts on her crutches and winces. What's wrong with your leg? I ask. Twisted my ankle. My boots are too big, says Bonnie. I bite my lip. My instinct tells me they're telling the truth. And behind that truth is a whole lot of information I'd like to get. I step forward and retrieve Twill's gun before lowering my bow, though. Then I hesitate a moment, thinking of another day in these woods, when Gale and I watched a hovercraft appear out of thin air and capture two escapees from the capital. The boy was speared and killed. The red-headed girl, I found out when I went to the capital, 
was mutilated and turned into a mute servant called an Avox. Is anyone after you? We don't think so. We think they believe we were killed in a factory explosion, says Twill. Only a fluke that we weren't. All right, let's go inside, I say, nodding at the cement house. I follow them in, carrying the gun. Bonnie makes straight for the hearth and lowers herself onto a peacekeeper's cloak that's been spread before it. She holds her hands to the feeble flame that burns on one end of a charred log. Her skin is so pale as to be translucent, and I can see the fire glow through her flesh. Twill tries to arrange the cloak, which must have been her own, around the shivering girl. A ten-gallon can has been cut in half, the lip ragged and dangerous. It sits in the ashes, filled with a handful of pine needles steaming in water. You making tea? I ask. I'm not sure, really. I, I remember seeing someone do this with pine needles on the Hunger Games a few years back. At least, I think it was pine needles, says Twill with a frown. I remember District 8. An ugly urban place stinking of industrial fumes. The people housed in run-down tenements. Barely a blade of grass in sight. No opportunity, ever, to learn the ways of nature. It's a miracle these two have made it this far. You're out of food? I ask. Bonnie nods. We took what we could, but food's been so scarce. It's been gone for a while. The quaver in her voice melts my remaining defenses. She's just a malnourished, injured girl fleeing the capital. Well, this is your lucky day, I say, dropping my game bag on the floor. People are starving all over the district, and we still have more than enough. So I've been spreading things out a little bit. I have my own priorities. Gail's family, Greasy Say, some of the other hob traders who were shut down. My mother has other people. Patients, mostly, who she wants to help. This morning, I purposefully overstuffed my game bag with food, knowing my mother would see the depleted pantry and assume I was making my rounds to the hungry. I was actually buying time to go to the lake without her worrying. I intended to deliver the food this evening on my return, but now I can see that won't be happening. From my bag, I pulled two fresh buns with a layer of cheese baked onto the top. We always seem to have a supply of these, since Peter found out they were my favorite. I toss one to Twill, but cross over and place the other in Bonnie's lap, since her hand-eye coordination seems a little questionable at the moment, and I don't want the thing to end up in the fire. Oh, says Bonnie. Is this all for me? Something inside of me twists as I remember another voice. Rue. In the arena. When I gave her that leg of Grusling. never had a whole leg to myself before. The disbelief of the chronically hungry. Yeah, eat up, I say. Bonnie holds the bun as if she can't quite believe it's real and then sinks her teeth into it again and again, unable to stop. It's better if you chew it. She nods, trying to slow down, but I know how hard it is when you're that hollow. I think your tea's done. I scoot the tin can from the ashes. Twill finds two tin cups from her pack, and I dip out the tea, setting it on the floor to cool. They huddle together, eating, blowing on their tea, and taking tiny, scalding sips as I build up the fire. I wait until they're sucking the grease from their fingers to ask, 
So, what's your story? And they tell me. Ever since the Hunger Games, the discontent in District 8 has been growing. It was always there, of course, to some degree, but what differed was the talk. It was no longer sufficient, and the idea of taking action went from a wish to a reality. The textile factories that service Pan Am are allowed with machinery, and the din also allowed word to pass safely. A pair of lips close to an ear, words unnoticed, unchecked. Twill taught at school. Bonnie was one of her pupils, and when the final bell had rung, both of them spent a four-hour shift at the factory that specialized in the peacekeeper uniforms. It took months for Bonnie, who worked in the chilly inspection dock, to secure the two uniforms. A boot there, a pair of pants here. They were intended for Twill and her husband, because it was understood that once the uprising began, it would be crucial to get word of it beyond District 8 if it were to spread and be successful. The day Peta and I came through and made our victory tour appearance was actually a rehearsal of sorts. People in the crowd positioned themselves according to their teams, next to the buildings that they would target when the rebellion broke out. That was the plan. To take over the centers of power in the city, just like the Justice Building, the Peacekeepers' headquarters, and the Communications Center in the square. And at other locations in the district, the railroad, the granary, the power station, and the armory. The night of my engagement, the night Peter fell to his knees and proclaimed his undying love for me in front of the cameras in the Capitol, was the night the uprising began. It was an ideal cover. Our victory tour interview with Caesar Flickerman was mandatory viewing. It gave the people of District 8 a reason to be out in the streets after dark, gathering either in the square or in various community centers around the city to watch. Ordinarily, such activity would have been too suspicious. Instead, Everyone was in place by the appointed hour, eight o'clock, when the masks went on and all hell broke loose. Taken by surprise and overwhelmed by sheer numbers, the peacekeepers were initially overcome by the crowds. The communication center, the granary, the power station were all secured. As the peacekeepers fell, weapons were appropriated for the rebels. There was hope that this had not been an act of madness, that in some way, if they could get the word out to the other districts, an actual overthrow of the government in the capital might be possible. But then the axe fell. Peacekeepers began to arrive by the thousands. Hovercraft bombed the rebel strongholds into ashes. In the utter chaos that followed, it was all people could do to make it back to their homes alive. It took less than 48 hours to subdue the city. Then, for a week, there was a lockdown. No food, no coal, everyone forbidden to leave their homes. The only time the television showed anything but static was when the suspected instigators were hanged in the square. Then one night, as the whole district was on the brink of starvation, came the order to return to business as usual. That meant school for Twill and Bonnie. A street made impassable by the bombs caused them to be late for their factory shift, so they were still a hundred yards away when it exploded, killing everyone inside, including Twill's husband and Bonnie's entire family. Someone must have told the Capitol that the idea for the uprising had started there, Twill tells me faintly. The two fled back to Twill's, where the peacekeeper's suits were still waiting. 
They scraped together what provisions they could, stealing freely from the neighbors that they knew to be dead, and made it to the railroad station. In a warehouse near the tracks, they changed into the peacekeeper outfits, and, disguised, were able to make it into a boxcar full of fabric on a train headed for District 6. They fled the train at a fuel stop along the way and traveled on foot. Concealed by the woods, but using the tracks for guidance, they made it to the outskirts of District 12 two days ago, where they were forced to stop when Bonnie twisted her ankle. I understand why you're running, but what do you expect to find in District 13? I ask. Bonnie and Twill exchange a nervous glance. We're not sure exactly, Twill says. It's nothing but rubble. We've all seen the footage. That's just it. They've been using the same footage for as long as anyone in District 8 can remember, says Twill. Really? I try to think back, to call up the images of 13 I've seen on the television. You know how they always show the Justice Building? Twill continues. I nod. I've seen it a thousand times. If you look very carefully, you'll see it. It's up in the far right-hand corner. See what? I ask. Twill holds out her cracker with the bird again. A mockingjay. Just a glimpse of it as it flies by. It's the same one every time. Back home, we think they keep reusing old footage because the Capitol can't show what's really out there now, says Bonnie. I give a grunt of disbelief. You're going to District 13 based on that. A shot of a bird. You think you're going to find some new city with people strolling around in it? And that's just fine with the capital? No, Twill says earnestly. We think that people have moved on the ground when everything on the surface was destroyed. We think they've managed to survive. And we think that the capital leaves them alone because before the dark days, District 13's principal industry was nuclear development. They were graphite miners, I say. But then I hesitate, because that's information I got from the capital. They had a few small mines, yes, but not enough to satisfy a population of that size. That, I guess, is the only thing that we know for sure, says Twill. My heart's beating too quickly. What if they're right? Could it be true? Could there be somewhere to run beside the wilderness? Somewhere safe? If a community exists in District 13, would it be better to go there, where I might be able to accomplish something, instead of waiting here for my death? But then, if there are people in District 13 with powerful weapons... Why haven't they helped us? I say angrily. If it's true, why do they leave us here to live like this? With the hunger and the killings and the games? And suddenly I hate this imaginary underground city of District 13 and those who sit by watching us die. They're no better than the capital. We don't know, Bonnie whispers. Right now we're just holding out to the hope that they exist. That snaps me back to my senses. These are delusions. District 13 doesn't exist because the capital would never let it exist. They're probably mistaken about the footage. Mockingjays are about as rare as rocks. 
and about as tough. If they could survive the initial bombing of 13, they're probably doing better than ever now. Bonnie has no home. Her family is dead. Returning to District 8 or assimilating into another district would be impossible. Of course, the idea of an independent, thriving District 13 draws her. I can't bring myself to tell her she's chasing a dream as insubstantial as a wisp of smoke. Perhaps she and Twill can carve out a life in the woods somehow. I doubt it, but they're so pitiful I have to try and help. First, I gave them all the food in my pack. Grain and dried beans, mostly, but there's enough to hold them for a while, if they're careful. Then I take Twill out into the woods and try to explain the basics of hunting. She's got a weapon that, if necessary, can convert solar energy into deadly rays of power, so that could last indefinitely. When she manages to kill her first squirrel, the poor thing is mostly a charred mess because it took a direct hit to the body. But I show her how to skin it and clean it. With some practice, she'll figure it out. I cut a new crutch for Bonnie. Back at the house, I peel off an extra layer of socks for the girl, telling her to stuff them into the toes of her boots to walk and then wear them on her feet at night. Finally, I teach them how to build a proper fire. They beg me for details of the situation in District 12, and I tell them about life under thread. I can see they think this is important information that they'll be bringing to those who run District 13, and I play along so as not to destroy their hopes. But when the light signals late afternoon, I'm out of time to humor them. I've got to go now, I say. They pour out thanks and embrace me. Tears spill from Bonnie's eyes. I can't believe we actually got to meet you. You're practically all anyone's talked about since... I know, I know. Since I pulled out those berries, I say tiredly. I hardly notice the walk home, even though wet snow begins to fall. My mind is spinning with new information about the uprising in District 8 and the unlikely, but tantalizing possibility of District 13. Listening to Bonnie and Twill confirmed one thing. President Snow has been playing me for a fool. All the kisses and endearments in the world couldn't have derailed the momentum building up in District 8. Yes, my holding out the berries had been the spark, but I had no way to control the fire. He must have known that. So why visit my home? Why order me to persuade the crowd of my love for Peta? was obviously a ploy to distract me and keep me from doing anything else inflammatory in the districts. And to entertain the people in the capital, I suppose. Of course, the wedding is just a necessary extension of that. I'm nearing the fence when a mocking jay lights on a branch and trills at me. At the sight of it, I realize I never got a full explanation of the bird on the cracker and what it signifies. It means we're on your side. That's what Bonnie said. I have people on my side? What side? Am I unwittingly the face of the hoped-for rebellion? Has the Mockingjay on my pin become a symbol of resistance? If so, my side's not doing too well. You only have to look at what happened in 8 to know that. I stash my weapons in a log near the old home in the seam and head for the fence. I'm crouched on one knee, preparing to enter the meadow, but I'm still so preoccupied with the day's events that it takes a sudden screech of an owl to bring me to my senses. In the fading light, 
The chain links look as innocuous as usual. But what makes me jerk back my hand is the sound, like the buzz of a tree full of angry tracker jackers, indicating that the fence is alive with electricity. Very intriguing. What do y'all think? This is news. Is it good news? Is it bad news? I think ultimately that's kind of going to be the chatterbreak question, right? What does this mean for Katniss and what she's trying to accomplish? Uh, what she hopes will happen in the districts? What does this mean for Katniss? Sir David Goodvibe says, uh-oh... Did they see her go? An excellent question, Sir David. Good vibes. An excellent question. There doesn't seem to be a lot of... A lot of other reasons for them to do it, right? What other reason might they have? There aren't a lot. But of course, you know, there are so many reasons why um, uh, they, they, so many ways that they could have found out about Katniss, but that's been true for a long, long time. Why, if, if this is the reason, why now? You know, what has changed here in the situation? That's the chatterbreak question. Why now? So, everybody... If you would like to go ahead and uh, pop that into chat, I would be curious to know what you all think of it. Um, I, of course, uh, am Sam. This, of course, is Sidecar Stories, and of course, well, <laughs> we're here to read some stories. Um, right now, we are reading our way through The Hunger Games. Morgoth is mad, says, what's going on here? I have no idea. Uh, gr a great question. Frankly, an apt question from Morgoth is mad. Uh, I'm sorry that you're so angry, Morgoth. Uh, I do hope that uh, your day improves from here. Um, <laughs> uh, right now, I'm trying to like work on some very fiddly little uh, details because my system won't let me right now. Okay, there we go. We're good. Uh, Morgoth is mad. Got some hydrating to do. Um, welcome, Morgoth. Yeah, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. Uh, on this channel, we celebrate stories in uh, so many of its forms. We like to tell stories to one another. We like to tell stories with one another. Uh, you can find us here every Thursday for Flying Sidecar, where uh, this is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Right now, The Hunger Games, we have done Harry Potter. We have done... Um, <laughs> we have done... Um, uh, 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 Percy Jackson, the... the uh, core series of it. Uh, and now, of course, we are into the Hunger Games. Um, and then, of course, we have got our Wednesday show currently up and running, which is Side Cannons! That is our tabletop RPG show. You can find us there uh, at noon Pacific time, and you can join us uh, and play one of our two characters. I'm playing one character. Chat is playing the other one. Um, you're playing a ghost lad named Igor at a spooky school for uh, young vampires 
lichen and ghosts. Uh, I hope that is uh, exciting enough to draw some of y'all in. And if not, uh, go check out Instagram, Twitter, because uh, that's where I'm putting up clips of that. Uh, if y'all are curious about how it went this week, I'm going to tell you something. Pretty short episode this week, and we got thrashed harder than we ever have before. This might have been the most devastating episode. Uh, <laughs> we just got we just got real hurt, gang. Uh, so if you're wondering about uh, what went so poorly, you'll have to go and check that out. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun. So uh, Morgoth and anyone else who is joining us for the first time, uh, go ahead. If you would like to learn more about this show, about what the heck we do here, go ahead and use the links command. That will bring up the link tree. That is the link to follow. And that is the link to share uh, with other folks. Uh, and I, of course, I appreciate it if you do. Go ahead and tag me uh, if you're sharing that link tree around because I'll, I'll want to be able to thank you. Uh, link tree slash sidecar stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That's where you find yourself. This, that is the, that, those are the saloon doors you just kicked in, Morgoth. Orly Rose says, I think the now is because the Capitol has cameras and surveillance and takes all the intel it gathers and is causing snow to panic. Indeed, uh, we're gonna read two more chapters tonight. We've still got two more chapters to read and then some sound bites later. Uh, before each of the chapters, we'll do a spot of review so you know where we are at roughly. Uh, but if you are looking for the back episodes of this, please go check out wherever you get your podcasts. You're looking for Flying Sidecar. That's the name of this particular show, and you will find uh, some of our past reads there. Um, this is... This is uh, in between chapters, so of course uh, we do a little chatter break question. Right now the question is, why now? Why is it that, uh, that suddenly this gate is electrified when it, it virtually never is? Orly Rose says, I think the now is because the Capitol has cameras and surveillance and it takes all that intel and it's causing snow to panic. Indeed, there's there's certainly some panic going on, right? But there's that little note from Katniss. There's that odd little moment where she realizes it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how well I played this part with with Peta during the um, uh, during the sort of like six month celebration during the the victory tour. It didn't matter. Things in eight were already bad enough. By the time we got there, they were having a dress rehearsal for the event for the for the uprising. So why? Still a little bit baffling. And Morgoth is mad. You know, I do recognize Morgoth now that you gave it some context, but I, I'm going to tell you all right now, I have never read the entirety of the Silmarillion. I've read uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, uh, let's see, probably about four times all the way through, but um, I wasn't able to make my way all the way through Silmarillion. It reads like a Bible. <laughs> Uh, Van Saves Live says, I think they knew Katniss had been leaving, but there wasn't real harm before. Now that there is, she needs a shorter leash. They can't afford for her to ever be unaccounted for anymore. A good theory. They gotta know that, that Katniss is inside the cage, right? Because if she's inside the cage, they can control her better. If they can control her better, they can keep up pillar number 74 uh, that keeps the this power structure in place. And if they can keep that pillar in place, well... They can just keep doing it. They can just keep going. Just keep this pillar long enough to hold us till 75. Pillar number 75. The 75th annual Hunger Games, which are on their way. This section, indeed, the second out of three sections of this book, is called The Quell. And I think 
it's probably time to jump in there. Orly Rose says, also the capital has been so abusive, so the districts were already ready to rebel. She used it as a symbol, um, uh, but if she is used as a symbol, but if not for her, they would have found another banner. Possibly, possibly. You know, it, there, every Tinder takes a spark. Hi, Swan Song. How you doing? I hope you're doing well. All right, gang. Let's talk a spot of review. Um, in this book, up to this point, uh, Katniss is uh, sort of bouncing back and forth between plans. She is under enormous pressure from uh, President Snow and from the entirety of uh, sort of the capital as they see her as a source of entertainment and also of danger to their structure of power. President Snow has ordered her to maintain appearances. It's not working. So now Katniss is bouncing back and forth between plans. She she wants to leave, but realizes that wouldn't be the right thing to do. Uh, she wants to start a rebellion, but the people in District 12 are too too scared right now. What can she possibly do next? How can she even understand how it's gone in other districts if she can't get um, sort of uh, real, genuine information from there? So, she heads out into the woods. It's her place to think. She just needs some time alone. And out there, she meets two people from District 8. This is where we begin this uh, chapter that we just read. Um, these two, Bonnie and... I literally just read it. Twill. Bonnie and Twill. Um, they're from District 8, where they make textiles, including the factory that these two work at, wherein they make the Peacekeeper uniforms. These two put together this plan over a long, long time, where basically Twill and her husband were going to be... Um, uh, uh, going to pose as Peacekeepers and escape. Unfortunately, um, as of the uprising in District 8, which had been planned and was actually already sort of in motion before Katniss even went there during the, the victory tour, the plan goes great for, I give this, I get the sense that it's a couple of days. They're able to seize the major uh, uh, points of interest, the major points of power, um, you know, the peacekeeping, uh, the, the, what was it called? The justice building, um, the armory, etc. And then peacekeepers start to flood in, and over the course of 48 hours, the rebellion is over. They're on lockdown, they all have to go home, and they have to just sit there. And then, as people's sort of spirits are broken by this, they're ordered to go back to business as usual. Bonnie and Twill are headed toward the factory where they work, and... They're a little late, which means they're not in the building when it blows up. Sounds like the Capitol had some idea that that factory is where some of this rebellion started, and so they just blew it up, including the people inside, including Bonnie's entire family and Twill's husband. With no one else to wait for, and with, you know, the people responsible, hopefully assuming that they died in the explosion too, they grab these two peacekeeper uniforms that were intended for Bonnie and her husband and, uh, excuse me, uh, intended for Twill and her husband, and Twill and Bonnie head off into the wilderness to escape District 8. They catch a train, they jump off it before it checks any, uh, goes through any checkpoints, and 
they end up outside of District 12, where they have survived just barely, but they are certainly starving. Katniss gives them some food, and they mention their their destination, District 13. They say there's some some. They've been watching the video evidence. They're using they're, they're reusing the same video. Why? Because they can't show what's going on there right now. Because District 13 is alive and well. They live underground now, and they they used to be responsible for nuclear power. The Capitol doesn't tell you this stuff, but if we can get there, maybe they've got weapons to to fight back. Um, and Katniss sort of realizes, as hopeful as she would love to be about such an idea, it just can't be true. These two people who have nowhere else to go are clutching at anything that could give them hope. So she doesn't crush that, but she doesn't believe it either. As we end chapter 10, she heads back home and reaches the fence, which for the first time almost ever is fully electrified and leaves Katniss on the outside with no way in. Chapter 11. My feet back up automatically and I blend into the trees. I cover my mouth with my glove to disperse the white of my breath in the icy air. Adrenaline courses through me, wiping all the concerns from the day from my mind as I focus on the immediate threat before me. What is going on? Has Thread turned on the fence as an additional safety precaution? Or does he somehow know I've escaped his net today? Is he determined to strand me outside District 12 until he can apprehend and arrest me? Drag me to the square to be locked in the stockade or whipped or hanged? Calm down, I order myself. It's not as if this is the first time I've been caught on the outside of the district by an electrified fence. It's happened a few times over the years, but Gale has always been with me. The two of us would just pick a comfortable tree to hang out in until the power shut off, which it always did eventually. If I was running late, Prim even got in the habit of going to the meadow to check if the fence was charged, to spare my mother worry. But today, my family would never imagine I'd be in the woods. I've even taken steps to mislead them, so if I don't show up, worry they will. And there's a part of me that's worried too, because I'm not sure if it's just a coincidence, the power coming on the very day that I returned to the woods. I thought no one would see me sneak onto the fence, but who knows? There are always eyes for hire. Someone reported Gale kissing me in that very spot. Still, that was in daylight, and before I was more careful about my behavior. Could there be surveillance cameras? I've wondered about this before. Is this the way that President Snow knows about the kiss? It was dark when I went under, and my face was bundled under a scarf. But the list of suspects likely to be trespassing in the woods is probably very short. My eyes peer through the trees, past the fence, into the meadow. All I can see is the wet snow illuminated here and there by the light from the windows on the edge of the seam. 
No peacekeepers in sight. No signs I'm being hunted. Whether Thread knows I left the district today or not, I realize my course of action must be the same. To get back inside the fence unseen and pretend I never left. Any contact with the chain link or the coils of barbed wire that guard the top would mean instant electrocution. I don't think I can burrow under the fence without risking detection, and the ground is frozen hard anyway. That leaves only one choice. Somehow, I'm going to have to go over it. I begin to skirt along the tree line, searching for a tree with a branch high and long enough to fit my needs. After about a mile, I come upon an old maple that might do. The trunk is too wide and icy to shimmy up, though, and there are no low branches. I climb a neighboring tree and leap precariously into the maple, almost losing my hold on the slick bark. But I manage to get a grip and slowly inch my way out onto a limb that hangs above the barbed wire. As I look down, I remember why Gale and I always waited in the woods rather than try to tackle the fence. Being high enough to avoid getting fried means you've got to be at least 20 feet in the air. I guess my branch must be 25. That's a dangerously long drop, even for someone who's had years of experience in trees. But what choice do I have? I could look for another branch, but it's almost dark now. The falling snow will obscure any moonlight. Here, at least, I can see I've got a snow bank to cushion my landing. Even if I could find another, which is doubtful, who knows what I'd be jumping into. I throw my empty game bag around my neck and slowly lower myself until I'm hanging by my hands. For a moment, I gather my courage. Then I release my fingers. There's a sensation of falling, and then I hit the ground with a jolt that goes right up my spine. A second later, my rear end slams into the ground. I lie in the snow, trying to assess the damage. Without standing, I can tell by the pain in my left heel and my tailbone that I'm injured. The only question is, how badly? I'm hoping for bruises, but when I force myself to my feet, I suspect I've broken something as well. I can walk, though, so I get moving, trying to hide my limp as best I can. My mother and Prim can't know I was in the woods. I need to work up some sort of alibi, no matter how thin. Some of the shops in the square are still open, so I go into one and purchase white cloth for bandages. We're running low anyway. In another, I buy a bag of sweets for Prim. I stick one of the candies in my mouth, feeling the peppermint melt on my tongue. And I realize it's the first thing I've eaten all day. I meant to make a meal at the lake, but once I saw Twill and Bonnie's condition, it seemed wrong to take a single mouthful from them. By the time I reach my house, my left heel will no longer bear weight at all. I decide to tell my mother I was trying to mend a leak in the roof of our old house and slid off. As for the missing food, I'll just be vague about who I handed it out to. I drag myself to the door, all ready to collapse in front of the fire. But instead, I get another shock. Two peacekeepers, a man and a woman, are standing in the doorway of our kitchen. The woman remains impassive, but I catch the flicker of surprise on the man's face. I am unanticipated. They know I was in the woods and should be trapped there now. Hello, I say in a neutral voice. My mother appears behind them, but keeps her distance. There she is, just in time for dinner, she says a little too brightly. I'm very late for dinner. I consider removing my boots as I normally would, but I doubt I can manage it without revealing my injuries. Instead, I just pull off my wet hood and shake the snow from my hair. Can I help you with something? 
I ask the peacekeepers. Head peacekeeper Thread sent us with a message for you, says the woman. They've been waiting for hours, my mother adds. They've been waiting for me to fail to return. To confirm, I got electrocuted by the fence or trapped in the woods so they can take my family in for questioning. Must be an important message, I say. May we ask where you've been, Miss Everdeen? The woman asks. Easier to ask where I haven't been, I say, with a sound of exasperation. I cross into the kitchen, forcing myself to use my foot normally, even though every step is excruciating. I pass between the peacekeepers and make it to the table all right. I fling my bag down and turn to Prim, who's standing stiffly by the hearth. Hamish and Peter are there as well, sitting in a pair of matching rockers, playing a game of chess. Were they here by chance or invited by the peacekeepers? Either way, I'm glad to see them. So, where haven't you been? Says Hamish in a bored voice. Well, I haven't been talking to the goat man about getting Prim's goat pregnant because someone gave me completely inaccurate information as to where he lives. I say to Prim emphatically. No, I didn't, says Prim. I told you exactly. He said that he lives beside the west entrance of the mine, I say. East entrance, Prim corrects me. You distinctly said the west because when I said next to the slag heap, you said yeah, I say. Slag heap next to the east entrance, says Prim patiently. No, when did you say that? I demand. Last night, Hamish chimes in. It was definitely the east, adds Peter. He looks at Hamish and they laugh. I glare at Peter and he tries to look contrite. I'm sorry, but that's what I've been saying. You don't listen when people talk to you. I bet people told you that he didn't live there today and you didn't listen again, says Hamish. Shut up, Hamish, I say, clearly indicating he's right. Hamish and Peter crack up and Prim allows herself a smile. Fine. Somebody else can arrange that the stupid goat gets knocked up, I say, which makes them laugh even more, and I think, this is why they've made it so far. Hamish and Peter, nothing throws them. I look at the peacekeepers. The man's smiling, but the woman is unconvinced. What's in the bag? She says sharply. I know she's hoping for game or wild plants, something that clearly condemns me. I dump the contents on the table. Save for yourself. Oh, good, says my mother, examining the cloth. We're running low on bandages. Peter comes to the table and opens the candy bag. Oh, peppermints, he says, popping one in his mouth. They're mine. I take a swipe at the bag. He tosses it to Hamish, who stuffs a fistful of sweets into his mouth before passing the bag to a giggling prim. None of you deserves candy, I say. Well, because we're right. Peter wraps his arm around me. I give a small yelp of pain as my tailbone objects. I try to turn it into a sound of indignation, but I can see in his eyes he knows I'm hurt. At eight, Prim said West. I distinctly held West, and we're all idiots. How's that? Better, I say, and accept his kiss. Then I look at the peacekeepers as if I'm suddenly remembering they're there. You have a message for me. From head peacekeeper thread, says the woman. 
He wanted you to know that the fence surrounding District 12 will now have electricity 24 hours a day. Didn't it already? I asked, a little too innocently. He thought you might be interested in passing this information on to your cousin, says the woman. Well, thank you, I'll tell him. I'm sure we'll all sleep a little more soundly now that security's been addressed. I'm pushing things, I know it, but the comment gives me a sense of satisfaction. The woman's jaw tightens. None of this has gone as planned, but she has no further orders. She gives me a curt nod and leaves, the man trailing in her wake. When my mother has locked the door behind them, I slump against the table. What is it? asks Peter, holding me steadily. Oh, I banged up my left foot, the heel. My tailbone's had a bad day, too. He helps me over to one of the rockers, and I lower myself onto the padded cushion. My mother eases off my boots. What happened? I slipped and fell, I say. Four pairs of eyes look at me with disbelief. On some ice? But we all know the house must be bugged, and it's not safe to talk openly. Not here. Not now. Having stripped off my sock, my mother's fingers probe the bones on my left heel, and I wince. There might be a break, she says. She checks the other foot. This one seems all right. She judges my tailbone to be badly bruised. Prim's dispatched to get my pajamas and robe. When I'm changed, my mother makes a snow pack for my left heel and props it up in a hassock. I eat three bowls of stew and half a loaf of bread while the others dine at the table. I stare at the fire, thinking of Bonnie and Twill, hoping that the heavy, wet snow has erased my tracks. Prim comes and sits on the floor next to me, leaning her head against my knee. We suck on peppermints as I brush her soft, blonde hair back behind her ear. How was school? I ask. All right. We learned about cold byproducts, she says. We stare at the fire for a while. Are you going to try on your wedding dresses? Not tonight. Probably tomorrow, I say. Wait until I get home, okay? She says. Sure. If they don't arrest me first. My mother gives me a cup of chamomile tea with a dose of sleep syrup, and my eyelids begin to droop immediately. She wraps my bad foot, and Peter volunteers to get me to bed. I start out by leaning on his shoulder, but I'm so wobbly he just scoops me up and carries me upstairs. He tucks me in and says goodnight, but I catch his hand and hold him there. A side effect of the sleep syrup is that it makes people less inhibited, like white liquor, and I know I've got to control my tongue. But I don't want him to go. In fact, I want him to climb in with me, to be there when the nightmares hit tonight. For some reason I can't quite form, I know I'm not allowed to ask that. Don't go yet. Not until I fall asleep, I say. Peter sits on the side of the bed, warming my hand in both of his. Almost thought that you changed your mind today, when you were late for dinner. I'm foggy, but I can guess what he means. With the fence going up and me being late and the peacekeepers waiting, he thought I'd made a run for it. Maybe with Gail. No, I, I'd have told you, I say. I pull up his hand and lean my cheek against the back of it. 
taking in the faint scent of cinnamon and dill from the breads he must have been baking today. I wanted to tell him about Twill and Bonnie, and the uprising, and the fantasy of District 13, but it's not safe, and I can feel myself slipping away, so I just get out one more sentence. Stay with me. As the tendrils of sleep syrup pull me down, I hear him whisper a word back, but I don't quite catch it. My mother lets me sleep in until noon, then rouses me to examine my heel. I'm ordered to a week of bed rest, and I don't object because I feel so lousy. Not just my heel and my tailbone, my whole body aches with exhaustion. So I let my mother doctor me and feed me breakfast in bed and tuck another quilt around me. Then I just lie there, staring out my window at the winter sky, pondering how on earth this will all turn out. I think a lot about Bonnie and Twill, and the pile of white wedding dresses downstairs, and if Thread will figure out how I got back in and arrest me. It's funny, because he could just arrest me anyway, based on past crimes, but maybe he has to have something really irrefutable to do it now, now that I'm a victor. And I wonder if President Snow is in contact with Thread. I think it's unlikely he ever acknowledged that old Cray existed, but now that I'm such a nation... nationwide... <laughs> nationwide is on your side. I think it's unlikely he ever acknowledged that old Cray existed, but now that I'm such a nationwide problem, is he carefully instructing Thread on what to do? Or is Thread acting on his own? At any rate, I'm sure they'd both agree on keeping me locked up inside the district with that fence. Even if I could figure out some way to escape, maybe get a rope up to that maple branch and climb out? There'd be no escaping with my family and friends now. I told Gail I would stay and fight anyway. For the next few days, I jump every time there's a knock on the door. No peacekeepers show up to arrest me, though, so eventually, I begin to relax. I'm further reassured when PETA casually tells me that the power is off in sections of the fence because crews are out securing the base of the chain link to the ground. Thread must believe I somehow got under the thing, even with that deadly current running through it. It's a break for the district, having the peacekeepers busy doing something besides abusing people. Peter comes by every day to bring me cheese buns and begins to help me work on the family book. It's an old thing, made of parchment and leather. Some herbalist on my mother's side of the family started it ages ago. The book's composed of page after page of ink drawings of plants with descriptions of their medical uses. My father added a section on edible plants that was my guidebook to keeping us alive after his death. For a long time, I've wanted to record my own knowledge in it. Things I learned from experience or from Gale, and then the information I picked up when I was training for the games. I didn't, because I'm no artist, and it's so crucial that the pictures are drawn in exact detail. That's where Peter comes in. Some of the plants he knows already, others we've dried samples of, and others I can describe. He makes sketches on scrap paper until I'm satisfied they're right, and then I let him draw them in the book. After that, I carefully print all I know about the plant. It's quiet, absorbing work. It takes my mind off of my troubles. I like to watch his hands as he works, making a blank page bloom with strokes of ink, adding touches of color to our previously black and yellowish book. His face takes on a special look when he concentrates. His usual easy expression is replaced by something more intense and removed that suggests an entire world locked away inside him. 
I've seen flashes of this before. In the arena, or when he speaks to a crowd, or that time he shoved the peacekeeper's guns away from me in District 11. I don't know quite what to make of it. I've also become a little fixated on his eyelashes, which ordinarily you don't notice because they're so blonde, but up close, in the sunlight slanting in from the window, they're a light golden color, and so long I didn't see how they keep from getting tangled up when he blinks. One afternoon, Peter stops shading a blossom and looks up so suddenly that I start as though I were caught spying on him, which in a strange way maybe I was. But he only says, you know, I think this is the first time we've ever done anything normal together. Yeah, I agree. Our whole relationship has been tainted by the games. Normal was never a part of it. Nice for a change. Each afternoon he carries me downstairs for a change of scenery, and I unnerve everyone by turning on the television. Usually we only watch when it's mandatory, because the mixture of propaganda and displays of the capital's power, including clips from 74 years of Hunger Games, is so odious. But now I'm looking for something special. The Mockingjay that Bonnie and Twill are basing all their hopes on. I know it's probably foolishness, but if it is, I want to rule it out and erase the idea of a thriving District 13 from my mind for good. My first sighting is in the news story referencing the dark days. I see the smoldering remains of the Justice Building in District 13 and just catch the black and white underside of a Mockingjay's wing as it flies across the upper right-hand corner. That doesn't prove anything, really. It's just an old shot that goes with an old tale. However, several days later... Something else grabs my attention. The main newscaster is reading a piece about a shortage of graphite affecting the manufacturing of items in District 3. They cut to what is supposed to be live footage of a female reporter, encased in a protective suit, standing in front of the ruins of the Justice Building in 13. Through her mask, she reports that, unfortunately, a study has just today determined that the mines of District 13 are still too toxic to approach. End of story. But just before they cut back to the main newscaster, I see the unmistakable flash of that same Mockingjay's wing. The reporter has simply been incorporated into the old footage. She's not in District 13 at all. Which begs the question, what is... Okay, so a fantasy, right? This fantasy idea of this land beyond the the capital's control. It would be nice, wouldn't it? But there's no chance. Well, there's this one little thing, right? There's this there's this news footage that supposedly gets reused, but you know, it that really could mean anything. Except, okay, Katniss goes home. She finds the footage. Okay, it's from an old cast, that's fine. But then she sees this newscast of this reporter 
who is supposedly live on location in District 13, and they're using that exact same footage with that Mockingjay wing just ducking into the upper right corner. Okay, well, she's... She's not in District 13, so what is? And that's my question for y'all. What is in District 13, and why... Why would they be uh, sort of... Why, why wouldn't they want to use this footage? What do we think is in District 13 right now? That is our Chatterbreak question. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. We're going to come back with our third of three chapters uh, momentarily. This is, uh, I believe, going to be our shortest stream of this entire book. Um, uh, just the way that the chapters shook out, I, I had to choose between doing either... Um, almost 10,000 words or more than 14,000 words. Uh, and y'all know I like to hang out like like 12,000 words would be a pretty long stream. So uh, we're going with uh, just short of 10,000 for this one. All right, y'all, everybody, everybody. I will see you in about five minutes. If you are watching on Twitch, you will be able to see the timer up on screen. Otherwise, go ahead, join me again in five minutes. I'm typically pretty dedicated about that number. Uh, and uh, we'll be back here in just a moment to find out what, what happens next. What does Katniss do now that she knows there's something strange about District 13? Got the chicken hiccups. What does that mean? Well, only one way to find out. <laughs> I don't know what that second part. I don't know what that means. Uh, but no, I I had a little another little smack girl. I ducked into the kitchen, had some cold chicken parmesan, <laughs> just a, just a few little bites, and now I got the hiccups. <laughs> Louise liked that entrance, I guess. Oh boy. Louis says, I thought I had gone back and listened to all that I missed, but I still feel like I'm missing something. Gonna have to re-listen. Um, Louise, do you have, like, are there specific questions that you, like, are missing at some juncture here? What's up? Maybe I can uh, shed a little bit of light on the situation. Now I'm saying? Now I'm saying? Y'all good? What's up? Talk about it, Louise. Uh, Van Saves Live says, I can't answer as to what's in 13, if anything, but if there's something, it either scares the capital or undermines it. Both of those are things that Snow hates, so likely whatever is there isn't being ignored but dealt, dealt with secretly. Now that is jarring. That is a jarring possibility, right? That, you know, they could go to, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is the capital doesn't want them to see, maybe it's something out there, but whatever it is, you know, uh, Bonnie and Twill show up there and find another war zone. Essentially just another district that is is being sort of like chipped away at by by uh, peacekeepers um, uh, or potentially, you know, just sort of like mining. Uh, there, there really is no one there and the, the capital is just mining it for, uh, you know, for the, the old nuclear technology. Maybe they've got sort of like a secret facility there where they can, you know, continue to exert control. Maybe it's exactly the opposite of what Bonnie and Twill are hoping for. Either that or it's not, it's not great, you know, regardless, it's not great. We don't know what it is, but we know that none of the things that it is, oh, I should say a very, a very small number of things that it could be are decent news. Most of them, very bad news. I, 
<laughs> Gertie. <laughs> Gertie, I do indeed have the chickups. I've got the chickups. Gotta go to the doctor for a chickup. Um, folks, thank you so much for joining me here today. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. This is Thursday, which makes this flying sidecar. And we are about to launch into our third and final chapter of the day. That's right, a short stream. Which, frankly, is kind of fortunate because we have got some Elantris to read. After this, we have got some, uh, we have got some, um, it, oh, you did this to me earlier today, too. What are you called? You wretched Beetle the Bard. There we go. <laughs> We're going to read some Beetle the Bard. Um, and we are going to read uh, a little excerpt from, I believe, Charlie Bone, if I remember correctly. So, we've got some stuff to do. And then uh, Courier 6, I saw that you popped one in for, uh, for let's see, April, May as well. <laughs> I still have to count all the way through uh, whenever I need to figure out what month I'm talking about. Oh boy, oh boy. Gertie says, I get Rickups usually. All right, Gertie, go ahead. Rice, <laughs> rice hiccups. I got you. Okay, but before we go into the review here, because I'm going to review before each one of these chapters, can I tell you all, for the past two or three months, I've been getting evening hiccups. I don't know if it's like the temperature change or whatever, but as we go into springtime, so too Sam goes into his hiccup phase, I guess. This has never happened to me before, but every evening, uh, around about bedtime, uh, I, I wonder if it's like, it's not like right after I eat either. I don't know why, but at the end of the night, I'll get hiccups for like 20 minutes, like every single night. It's been absolutely five out of seven nights a week. Very weird. It's very weird. I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but it's, it's very strange to me, you know? It's just, it's not normal. What can you do? All right, a bit of review. A bit of review. In this book so far, uh, Katniss is wrestling with what to do. She can't really decide to escape uh, and go off into the wilderness. She decides to stay and fight, but what can she actually do? District 12 is too scared to rise up right now, and she's having a hard time getting news about how other successful uprisings have gone. And then in our uh, uh, chapter 10, our first chapter from today, she meets Bonnie and Twill. They're from District 8, and it sounds like, yeah, they had a great rebellion, and then the capital struck back, and within 48 hours, it was all over. These two escaped, but they're heading toward District 13. This thing they've got in their mind is that, you know, the Capitol's been using this old footage, uh, reusing it, even though it's supposedly live footage of District 13. So if they're not showing us what's in District 13, why don't they want us to see what's there? Bonnie and Twill from District 8 have this idea that there might be a district still there, a district that the Capitol can't really mess with because before the end of things, they were responsible for nuclear power. Hmm. Interesting. Things have been going more and more poorly in town. Katniss needs uh, a moment to herself, so she goes outside the fence, but then she comes back to find that the gates are electrified. The whole fence is electrified, and she has to uh, climb a tree and drop down in. She breaks her leg uh, and, uh, you know, really <laughs> bruises up her tailbone. Um, she spends some time sort of like laying in bed, you know, getting some bed rest. Rest is an important part of the healing process. After all, um, after uh, after these these uh, peacekeepers come and tell her about um, 
you know, they're, they're there to deliver the news, apparently, that the gates are going to be on full time now. There we go. Um, but during this time, she has a chance to look into this question of the Capitol reusing footage of District 13. It appears that they are. So now she's at the very least curious. She's not buying the the utopia uh, or the, the dream that Bonnie and Twill pitched to her, but she's got an idea that maybe there is something going on there at least. And then finally, she and Peta have some time to just have a normal relationship, which might be one of the first times they've ever had that possibility. You know, the Capitol has had such an impact on their relationship. Um, whatever you call that relationship, whether it's romantic or otherwise, it is a relationship regardless. Um, and the the relationship that they've had has been, like, so thoroughly controlled by uh, the Capitol, either directly or through what they've had to do with their relationship to keep the Capitol happy, that kind of stuff. Um, and they just have this nice, quiet time of working on uh, this sort of heirloom book uh, that gets passed on through Katniss's family. Um, her parents, Katniss's parents, have put in uh, details about edible plants and um, uh, medicinal plants, and now she wants to add some of those things herself with the knowledge that she has gained and hopefully be able to continue to pass on that knowledge. But we end this, uh, this last chapter with this vision, this, uh, this news clip that is supposedly live from District 13, but... It's clearly not. They're reusing the footage. What is in District 13? Chapter 12. Staying quietly in bed is harder after that. I want to be doing something, finding out more about District 13, or helping in the cause to bring down the Capitol. Instead, I sit around stuffing myself with cheese buns and watching Peter sketch. Haymage stops by occasionally to bring me news from town, which is always bad. More people being punished or dropping from starvation. Winter has begun to withdraw by the time my foot is deemed usable. My mother gives me exercises to do and lets me walk a bit on my own. I go to sleep one night, determined to go into town the next morning, but I awake to find Venia, Octavia, and Flavius grinning down at me. Surprise! They squeal. We're here early. After I took that lash in the face, Haymitch got their visit pushed back several months so I could heal up. I wasn't expecting them for another three weeks. But I try to act delighted that my bridal photo shoot is here at last. My mother hung up all the dresses, so they're ready to go, but to be honest, I haven't even tried one on. After the usual histrionics about the deteriorated state of my beauty, they get right down to business. Their biggest concern is my face. Although I think my mother did a pretty remarkable job healing it, there's just a pale pink strip across my cheekbone. The whipping's not common knowledge, so I tell them I slipped on the ice and cut it. 
And then I realized that's my same excuse for hurting my foot, which is going to make walking in high heels a problem. But Flavius, Octavia, and Venia aren't the suspicious types, so I'm safe there. Since I only have to look hairless for a few hours instead of several weeks, I get to be shaved instead of waxed. I still have to soak in a tub of something, but it isn't vile, and we're on to my hair and makeup before I know it. The team, as usual, is full of news, which I usually do my best to tune out. But then, Octavia makes a comment that catches my attention. It's a passing remark, really, about how she couldn't get shrimp for a party, but it tugs at me. Why couldn't you get shrimp? Is it out of season? I ask. Oh, Captain, we haven't been able to... <laughs> She's not Irish. Octavia's not Irish. <laughs> She's not from District 12. Oh, Katniss, will you? I can't. Why can't I not? What's going on here? Hold on. Octavia. Octavia, are you okay? Why can't? I can't find it. <laughs> I'm trying to find my, my transatlantic. What's going on here? Oh, yeah. Just like that. Okay. There we go. All right. Now I found it. All right. We're back into it. Now I just have to put a little bit of gutter under it and we're good to go. Oh, Katniss, we haven't put, I, and it's Irish again. What's happening? It's that word, Katniss. It's tricking me back into the eye. I'm straight up stuck. I've never had this happen to me before. I've been doing this for four years. <laughs> we haven't been able to get any seafood for weeks, says Octavia. You know, because the weather has been so bad in District 4. My mind starts buzzing. No seafood. For weeks. From District 4. The barely concealed rage in the crowd during the victory tour. And suddenly... I'm absolutely sure that District 4 has revolted. I begin to question them casually about what other hardships this winter has brought them. They're not used to want, so any little disruption in supply makes an impact on them. By the time I'm ready to be dressed, their complaints about the difficulty of getting different products, from crab meat to music chips to ribbons, has given me a sense of which districts might actually be rebelling. Seafood from District 4 electronic gadgets from District 3, and, of course, fabric from District 8. The thought of such widespread rebellion has me quivering from fear and excitement. I want to ask them more, but Sinna appears to give me a hug and a quick check on my makeup. His attention goes right to the scar on my cheek. Somehow, I don't think he believes the slipping-on-ice story, but he doesn't question it. He simply adjusts the powder on my face, and what little you can see of the lash mark vanishes. Downstairs, the living room has been cleared and lit for the photo shoot. Effie's having a fine time ordering everyone around, keeping us all on schedule. It's probably a good thing, because there are six gowns, and each one requires its own headpiece, shoes, jewelry, hair, makeup, setting, and lighting. Creamy lace and pink roses and ringlets. Ivory satin and gold tattoos and greenery. A sheath of diamonds and jeweled veil and moonlight. Heavy white silk and sleeves that fall from my wrist to the floor, and pearls. The moment one shot has been approved, we move right on to preparing for the next. I feel like dough being kneaded and reshaped again and again. My mother manages to feed me bits of food and sips of tea while they work on me. By the time the shoot is over, I'm starving and exhausted. I'm hoping to spend some time with Sinna now, but Effie whisks everyone out the door and I have to make do with the promise of a phone call. Evening has fallen, and my foot hurts from all the crazy shoes, so I abandon any thoughts of going into town. Instead, I go upstairs and wash away the layers of makeup and conditioners and dyes, and then go down to dry my hair by the fire. 
Prim, who came home from school in time to see the last two dresses, chatters on about them with my mother. They both seem overly happy about the photo shoot. When I fall into bed, I realize it's because they think I'm safe. That the Capitol has overlooked my interferences with the whipping since no one's going to such trouble and expense for someone they plan on killing, right? In my nightmare, I'm dressed in the silk bridal gown, but it's torn and muddy. The long sleeves keep getting caught on thorns and branches as I run through the woods. The pack of mutation tributes draws closer and closer until it overcomes me with hot breath and dripping fangs and I scream myself awake. It's too close to dawn to bother trying to get back to sleep. Besides, today I really have to get out and talk to someone. Gale will be unreachable in the mines, but I need Hamish or Peta or somebody to share the burden of all that's happened to me since I went down to the lake. Fleeing outlaws, electrified fences, an independent District 13. Shortages in the capital. Everything. I eat breakfast with my mother and Prim and head out in search of a confidant. The air is warm with hopeful hints of spring to it. Spring would be a good time for an uprising, I think. Everyone feels less vulnerable once winter passes. Peter's not home. I guess he's already gone into town. I'm surprised to see Hamish moving around his kitchen so early, though. I walk into his house without knocking. I can hear Hazel upstairs sweeping the floors of the now spotless house. Hamish isn't flat-out drunk, but he doesn't look too steady either. I guess the rumors about Ripper being back in business are true. I'm thinking maybe I better let him go to bed when he suggests a walk to town. Hamish and I can speak in a kind of shorthand now. In a few minutes, I've updated him, and he's told me about the rumors of uprisings in District 7 and 11 as well. If my hunters are right, that would mean that almost half the districts have at least attempted to rebel. Do you think it won't work here? Still? I ask. Uh, not yet. Those other districts are much larger. Even if half the people cower in their homes, the rebels will stand a chance. Here in twelve, it's got to be all of us or nothing, he says. I hadn't thought of that, how we lack strength of numbers. But maybe at some point, I insist. Maybe, but we're weak. We're small and we don't develop nuclear weapons, says Haymitch with a touch of sarcasm. He didn't get too excited over my District 13 story. What do you think they'll do, Hamish? To the districts that are rebelling? I ask. Well, you heard about what they did in 8. You've seen what they did here and that was without provocation, says Hamish. If things really do get out of hand, I think they're going to have no problem killing off another district, same as they did in 13. Make an example of it, you know. So you think 13 really was destroyed? I mean, Bonnie and Twill were right about the footage of the Mockingjay. <laughs> okay, but what does that prove? Nothing, really. There are plenty of reasons they could be using old footage. It probably looks more impressive. And it's a lot simpler, isn't it? To just press a few buttons in the editing room than to fly all the way out there and film it. 
The idea that 13 has somehow rebounded and the capital is ignoring it. Sounds like the sort of rumour that desperate people cling to. I know, I was just hoping, I say. Exactly! Because you're desperate, says Hamish. I don't argue because, of course, he's right. Prim comes home from school, bubbling over with excitement. The teachers announced there was a mandatory programming tonight. I think it's going to be your photo shoot. It can't be, Prim. They only did the pictures yesterday, I tell her. Well, that's what somebody heard, she says. I'm hoping she's wrong. I haven't had time to prepare Gail for any of this. Since the whipping, I only see him when he comes to the house for my mother to check on how he's healing. He's often scheduled seven days a week in the mine. In the few minutes of privacy we've had, with me walking him back to town, I gather that the rumblings of an uprising in Twelve have been subdued by Thread's crackdown. He knows I'm not going to run. But he must also know that if we don't revolt in Twelve, I'm destined to be Peter's bride. Seeing me lounging around in gorgeous gowns on the television? What can he do with that? When we gather around the television at 7.30, I discover that Prim is right. Sure enough, there's Caesar Flickerman speaking before a standing-room-only crowd in front of the training center, talking to an appreciative crowd about my upcoming nuptials. He introduces Cinna, who became an overnight star with his costumes for me in the games, and after a minute of good-natured chit-chat, we're directed to turn our attention to a giant screen. I see now how they could photograph me yesterday and present the special tonight. Initially, Cinna designed two dozen wedding gowns. Since then, there's been the process of narrowing down the designs, creating the dresses, and choosing the accessories. Apparently, in the capital, there were opportunities to vote for your favorites at each stage. This is all culminating with shots of me in the final six dresses, which I'm sure took no time at all to insert into the show. Each shot is met with a huge reaction from the crowd, people screaming and cheering for their favorites, booing the ones that they don't like. Having voted, and probably bet on the winner, people are very invested in my wedding gown. It's bizarre to watch when I think about how I never even bothered to try one on before the cameras arrived. Caesar announces the interested parties must cast their final vote by noon the following day. Let's get Katniss Everdeen to her wedding in style, he hollers to the crowd. I'm about to shut off the television, but then Caesar is telling us to stay tuned for the other big event of the evening. That's right, this year will be the 75th anniversary of the Hunger Games, and that means it's time for our third quarter quell. What will they do? asks Prim. It isn't for months yet. We turn to our mother, whose expression is solemn and distant, as if she's remembering something. It must be the reading of the card. The anthem plays, and my throat tightens with revulsion as President Snow takes the stage. He's followed by a young boy dressed in a white suit, holding a simple wooden box. The anthem ends, and President Snow begins to speak, to remind us all of the dark days from which the Hunger Games were born. When the laws for the games were laid out, they dictated that every 25 years, the anniversary would be marked by a quarter quell, it would call for a glorified version of the games to make fresh the memory of those killed by the district's rebellion. 
These words could not be more pointed, since I suspect several districts are rebelling right now. President Snow goes on to tell us what happened in the previous quarter quells. On the 25th anniversary, as a reminder to the rebels that their children were dying because of their choice to initiate violence, every district was made to hold an election and vote on the tributes who would represent it. I wonder how that would have felt, picking the kids who had to go. It's worse, I think, to be turned over by your own neighbors than have your name drawn from the reaping ball. On the 50th anniversary, the president continues, as a reminder that two rebels died for each capital citizen, every district was required to send twice as many tributes. I imagine facing a field of 47 instead of 23. Worse odds, less hope, and ultimately, more dead kids. That was the year Hamish won. I had a friend who went that year, says my mother quietly. Maisie Lee Donner. Her parents owned the sweet shop. They gave me her, her songbird after. A canary. Prim and I exchange a look. It's the first time we've ever heard of Maisie Lee Donner. Maybe because my mother knew we would want to know how she died. And now we honor our third quarter quell, says the president. The little boy in white steps forward, holding out the box as he opens the lid. We can see the tidy, upright rows of yellowed envelopes. Whoever devised the quarter quell system had prepared for centuries of Hunger Games. The president removes an envelope clearly marked with a 75. He runs his finger under the flap and pulls out a small square of paper. Without hesitation, he reads, On the 75th anniversary, as a reminder to the rebels that even the strongest among them cannot overcome the power of the capital, the male and female tributes will be reaped from their existing pool of victors. My mother gives a faint shriek, and Prim buries her face in her hands but I feel more like the people I see in the crowd on television. Slightly baffled. What does it mean? Existing pool of victors. And then I get it. What it means. At least for me. District 12 only has three existing victors to choose from. Two male, one female. I am going back into the arena. And folks, that is our last chapter for this evening. However, we do this every Thursday night. So if you want to find out more, please head on over to the Discord. You can use the links command at any time that will bring up the spot to go, the link to follow, and the link to share, um, especially to Discord. But if you want to see uh, you know, clips of, <laughs> of the things going on uh, in the weeks that you've missed, you can find those over on Instagram, Twitter, etc. Yeah, Marin Ver sums it up pretty nicely simply saying not good 
<laughs> Not good indeed, Marin Ver. So, folks, thank you very much for joining me. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you folks uh, who have been with me, especially you folks who have been with me for a long time. Been with me as we moved from YouTube streaming to Mixer streaming, now here to Twitch streaming. Uh, and all of you folks who have, have done all that following, you know, hang out in the Discord and reminding me that, uh, you know, even if I move around a little bit, y'all are here for the long haul. I appreciate you all greatly. I also want to say thank you very, very much to you folks who have jumped in on Discord. Uh, uh, excuse me, uh, on Patreon. Um, I really appreciate my patrons. Um, and as a thank you to my patrons, we do a little thing called sound bites. Uh, good courage, you are literally right on time to have missed all three chapters. It was a short one this week. It was a short one. So, good courage, you are here right on time to miss all three chapters. Uh, we do have a, a, a few sound bites to go through today. We've got three, I believe, uh, unless I'm much mistaken. But I want to say thank you very much to my patrons. Um, I am going to uh, I'm going to hit this list real quick because, well, I really appreciate y'all incredibly uh, for, uh, for all the support that you've given me. Like I said, there have been many months uh, recently where you have sort of been responsible for helping keep our cats in our lives, helping to keep them healthy um, up at the very highest level. My thrilling trilogies. Jade Dragon and Death Metal Dahlia. Dahlia and Jade Thank you very much, uh, the <laughs> the king and queen of the castle. Uh, Y'all, thank you a ton. I appreciate you. Um, my shocking sequels. Uh, thank you very much to uh, this one. Actually, might be this one might be kind of quiet. If I remember correctly, this one's pretty quiet. Yeah, the shocking sequels. Uh, we <laughs> the 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 uh, the real whales in this situation. To use the gambling term. Um, uh, have gone ahead and just jumped straight up to the top. Uh, so, no shocking sequels. That's quite all right. Uh, our novel nouveaus. Uh, let's see. Deb, Gems, Marinver, and Sander. Thank you all a bunch. Uh, especially considering, like, y'all, many of y'all have been doing this for a while now. I appreciate you a ton. Our chapter champions. Quite a few. Gwendog, Ashes in the Sun, uh, uh, Gertie and Kibo, the JCA Collective. Represent <laughs> Sparkle of Good, Good Courage, um, uh, uh, Plague Deity, Vicky, Ali D, Orly Rose, Mike Steele, and the Mysterious E. Thank you a ton. Uh, our pristine pages. I want to say thank you to Proteus Spade, uh, <laughs> Lazy to the Bones, Little Lucy, Amy Thompson, uh, Neens, Louise, and Holly. Thank you a bunch. And then, of course, we have got our bold bookmarks. We've got, uh, let's see, uh, Nadette Music, Intikana, uh, Hook or Crook, Melty, Tanisha, Singsay, Sapphire Lady, and Kim. Y'all, thank you a bunch. I appreciate you a million. A million, that's right. And how do I appreciate you? Well, uh, we've got a few things going on, but uh, the big thing right now is I like to say thank you by, well, I'm a voice actor. Sometimes y'all wanna hear stuff read and perhaps I don't read it on my own. Perhaps I don't even know about it in some cases. Uh, and as such, as a patron, you can every month send me a little script. 
I'm a voice actor. You can be my voice director. I will read whatever y'all want. It can be something that you wrote. It can be, um, uh, it can be like a, a a little ad for your live stream or your podcast or whatever. Um, it could be a, <laughs> it could be a a, a a Tumblr meme you found funny, or it even could be other chapters of other interesting stuff. So, uh, we have got some folks who have sent in sound bites for this month. Um, those are due on the fifth of every month. If you want to find out more, please head to the Patreon. That is as with everything in my link tree.